Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. So the first thing I like to look at when I see a deal come to me is one, where is this deal located? Because the location helps me to determine, okay, is this in a market that I know has strong fundamentals, population growth, job growth, business, um, business friendly, landlord friendly. Those are four things that for me are very important. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, my guest is Lisa Hilton, and she's the host of the Level Up REI podcast and the founder of LisaHilton.com. It's a real estate investment firm that was created for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to build passive income and wealth through tax-efficient real estate investments. When she's not buying real estate, you can find her hiking, paddleboarding, practicing yoga, taking evening walks, swimming, traveling, embarking on wine country getaways, and trying new adventures. So it sounds like you got all kinds of stuff going on, Lisa. (laughs) Thanks for taking the time to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. We're excited to to dig in and uh, get into some detail. But before we do that, why don't you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got to be where you are today? Yeah. So I am originally from the Cayman Islands. I grew up in Grand Cayman. My father was a contractor, built 14 apartment units. So as a child, I was exposed to property management at an early age. Um, and my parents still own those properties today. My father, however, when I was in middle school, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. By the time I got to college, he passed away. So because he built those apartment units, it provided my family the investment vehicle to continue to generate cash flow. Um, During that time, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and he was the sole breadwinner. So as I said, we still have those today. Um, From there, I bought my first place in my early 20s and um, yeah, bought it because I loved it, but learned a lot of lessons on, you know, buying for making sure the numbers work um, as well as, you know, making sure you think about property management because I lived in Cayman for the first year with that property. And then every year after that, I did not live in Cayman and that property did not cash flow. So I 
ended up floating the property for a total of six years before ultimately selling it after getting a thousand dollar bill. Um, so at that point I said, you know what, no more real estate. And I say the universe has a sense of humor because a year or so later, I ended up taking a job working as a controller on private equity real estate funds after auditing funds for over a decade with PwC. Um, so I take, took this role. A friend of mine who was just leaving as I was starting said to me, you know, it'll take you six months to figure out what you're doing and six months to determine whether you like it. And in those six second six months, I realized, you know what, I can do this work, but I'm not going to stay here forever. So I need to think about what my next chapter is. Um, and that's sort of what brought me here. So, yeah. Very cool. Well, yeah, sounds like a, a lot of lessons learned on that first yes. investment. Mm -hmm. and, and then you carried that forward into, uh, you know, so you were auditing other people's funds. And, yes. then, and then, then you went on the other side. Uh, and we're the controller of a fund, right? So Correct. you were kind of the, the person behind the money there. That's right. Preparing all the reports to send out to investors, running all the calcs, uh, putting together all the financials um, so that investors know how their money is doing. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Great experience. Mm -hmm. And so now, what are you working on? Yeah. So these days, um, since then, you know, these days, as you announced in my intro, my business, LisaHilton.com, focused on primarily multifamily investments. Um, however, my long-term goal is recession-resistant real estate, so multifamily being the first one, but then focused also on other recession-resistant real estate asset classes, such as self-storage and a few others. Um, being able to provide opportunities for investors to invest in these types of real estate and leveraging my fund experience, you know, 14 and a half years taking care of funds in all different dimensions to be able to create opportunities using that fund experience to then create funds that enable investors to get exposure to maybe even multiple asset classes in one particular vehicle. So yeah, that's what I'm working on these days. So yeah. Yeah, really interesting. So, so you know, we, we talk a lot about <laughs> investing on the show, um, mm -hmm. different types of investments. Uh, as we were talking beforehand, though, I realized you know we haven't we haven't circled back kind of the basics in a while now that we're uh, fifty so episodes in, mm -hmm. and so why don't you just tell tell folks when we talk about syndication, you know, tell them what are we talking about, and then and then put the fun twist on it, and, and tell us how how it looks different uh, in a fun model. Yeah, sure. So real estate syndications is an opportunity to leverage the experience, expertise and capital of people to buy deals that are larger than one individual could buy on their own. Um, and how that looks like in simplicity is thinking about like a 600 unit apartment building um, that could be, you know, sold for like, I don't know, 50 million. Um, so one investor might not have 50 million. But, uh, you know, you leverage the experience of the sponsor team, the GP team, who, you know, finds the $50 million, 600 unit apartment building. Uh, you also then have a team member that's responsible for asset managing it um, and looking over the property manager. And then you have, 
you know, your investor relations folks who are working with investors, um, education, being able to talk to them about the deal. And then you have, you know, one of also you have investors themselves who are bringing capital to the deal uh, to, you know, in return leverage from your experience as a general operator uh, to then be able to get exposure to real estate while they're continuing to work in their primary jobs. So that for me is the best example that I could give. And then, yeah, putting a twist on it for the fund, um, which is great because typically the way, so real estate syndication, similar to the funds. However, with a fund, um, you could have just one asset. Most of the time it's not one, it's usually two or three. Um, and usually you have with the funds specifically, it then enables an investor to get diversification because now you might now be exposed to a variety of different assets or maybe even a variety of different asset types as well. Um, so that's what attracts people to the fund model in terms of that. But we can go in deeper in terms of some of the pros and cons as well to the extent that you want to. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. I think it's a good overview and, and great for people to understand. And and there's a couple different ways to to go about it, right? Yes. So so before that, before they decide if it's a single asset they want to invest in, if it's a mm -hmm. fund, how do how does one determine that that even passive investing is the right thing for them? Yeah, great question. Great question. I think a couple things um, that I think people need to think about. I think the first one is control. Like how much control do you want to have over your assets and over what you've invested in? Some people want to be able to determine, oh, when to sell, when to refi. You know, some people want to determine how the remodel is done on the asset. And if you're that type of person, then passively investing in real estate might not be a good fit for you. Um, however, keep in mind that like when you invest in the stock market, like in index funds or you're investing in Apple, you're also passively investing there as well because you don't have a say in how Apple runs their business. You just, the benefit is that you can sell the stock um, and that's way you can control. However, when you invest in a real estate syndication, uh, you don't get, you, you don't really have the flexibility to just sell your um, equity stake in that real estate syndication. So you're pretty much locked in for the duration um, of, you know, the period that you're in that particular investment. Uh, so I think one control, uh, the second thing that I think is also important for, for someone who's thinking about this is just sort of understanding, okay, when, what are the returns on these real estate syndications? And does this align with what I want for my investment strategy right now? You might have, and the reason I say that is because there's a lot of ways you can invest to earn money. Some people realize, you know what, they want to get a big win. And if they want a big win, they might decide that, you know what, I want to do crypto. Um, and crypto, they invest today and like, um, you know, a week from now, they've doubled their money or whatever, right? Whereas in real estate, 
like I think it's very important to level set expectations to understand that it's going to take a little while for that money to grow and for your investment to grow, but it's a little bit more stable. And in exchange for that stability, um, these are the types of returns you're going to ultimately get. It's not going to be as drastic as in one month or whatever. Um, you're doubling your money. And I think those are the two key things that there are other things, but I think as someone who's thinking about whether they should invest in a real estate syndication or not, it's like, okay, well, how much level of control do you want? And then secondly, is like, um, what do you want your money to do for you? Are you on this aggressive investing strategy? Then maybe real estate syndications is not necessarily the right fit. But if you're someone who's like, okay, I want my money to grow and I'm okay with it growing over a period of time, then real estate syndications is a really good fit for you. Yeah, I think those are two great points. And the other thing I would bring up is just the, the risk of it all, right? Because it's a very different risk profile to invest in real estate, especially like value add real estate, where it's a cash flowing business that's been there for a number of years versus something like crypto, right? Which is mm -hmm. extremely volatile and, and can go up and down overnight. I mean, it just, you may knock it out of the park and 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 you may not, you may lose mm -hmm. it all, right? Versus real estate, it's, it's very much a steadier play and by no means are the returns something that should be, should be kind of scoffed at, right? I mean, it's right. great returns, typically beating the stock market. But um, just, I think that risk adjusted piece of it and understanding what's the likelihood that I hit that big home run or grand slam, right? Versus what's sure. the likelihood that, uh, that I hit the returns that are expected on, on my real estate deal. I think they're, they're just very different risk profiles, right? Yes, 100%. Very, that's a good point. Yeah, awesome. And I think, yeah, the control is a big thing. Con like control, also time commitment, right? Like I always think about, you know, it, there, I think it sounds maybe sexy to, to people like be real estate syndication, kind of run, run things on your own. But I think when it comes down to like, you've got to be really passionate about this stuff, right? Like you really have to like it because it's a lot of time and it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Um, and if it's, if it's something that you're just kind of interested in to make money, it's probably not the best fit. It's probably not like a, a good, like trade-off of, of, you know, time to, right. to, to reward, you know what I mean? Unless you of really course. love it because it's of just, course. uh, you know, it's a lot to get into, I guess, but yeah, I think those are great tips. So when you're looking at, when you're looking at a deal and you're evaluating whether or not it's a good investment. Mm -hmm you know, what are the, some of the things that you're looking at and, and, and how should investors be looking at these deals? Yeah, great question. So I really think that people need to get clear on what they want first before they start looking at deals. Um, and sometimes you need to look at deals in order to get clear um, because you got to take action to know sometimes what it is that you want and sometimes what you don't want. Um, for me, as I can speak for my personal self, so like I am an investor that likes a good mix of cash flow and appreciation. I'm not really interested in a purely uh, appreciation deal, and then I'm not also interested in a purely cash flow deal. Um, and 
to break that down a little bit. So then as a result, that helps me determine what is a good deal for me. And what's a good deal for me might not be a good deal for the next person because they might want more appreciation. They might be looking for cash flow. They might be looking for tax benefits. Um, so that's why it's so important to first get clear about what you want. Now, once you're clear on that, the next part of it in terms of a good deal, I think understanding the risks and key assumptions that are being made in this particular deal. So the first thing I like to look at when I see a deal come to me is one, where's this deal located? Because the location helps me to determine, okay, is this in a market that I know has strong fundamentals, population growth, job growth, business, um, business friendly, landlord friendly. Those are four things that for me are very important um, because in the face of COVID, that COVID has shown the importance of those kinds of things because that enables you to have a business that will continue to sustain even in the face of a pandemic. Um, so that's the first thing that I look at. The second thing I look at is what is the business plan? What do they plan to do here? So I read to understand, are they planning on increasing rents? And if so, what is that rent increase strategy? Is it 3% a year? 0% the first year. I want to understand what the assumptions they're making in terms of how they're planning on increasing rents. Um, and then sometimes that business plan could be, oh, you know, this property has been mismanaged. So the expenses are high. We plan to go in and like, you know, institute ways in which they can decrease expenses, maybe putting in a different kind of water system or whatever, billing back for certain types of bills, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's a variety of different things, but understanding what the business plan is, understanding, okay, this is what's going on. This is what they're saying. And then sort of taking a step back and say, is this reasonable? So for me, it's like, maybe Googling that city and sort of seeing, you know, what is a part, how are apartments doing in that city? Um, and sometimes you can just Google and see, oh, there's new businesses moving in and, you know, that kind of stuff. And that helps to support, okay, it would sort of make sense why, you know, that is going, why that's true. I'll even just look at apartments.com or just like other things like that. Um, Zillow, that kind of stuff. Like I rent, so I know what it's like to look for a place. So I could just look and see, okay, I can see in my area what the rents go for. It's not really that hard. And then I would do the same thing for the property and sort of see, okay, does that make sense based on what they've put in the package in terms of their, um, their comps? Because many people will put their comps in the package. Um, and from that, I want to see, okay, is this operator doing some, the business plan that they're planning on executing and the asset class that they're working in, is this what they do? Is this their bread and butter? Um, because that helps to decrease execution risk. Um, because they have then been able to do this before they know what they're doing as opposed to um, they've not done this before and we're doing this for the first time so for me at least that's some of the things that i think are like very key when people are looking um, to sort of you know be able to determine whether okay is this deal a good deal and then are the 
the things that are the key assumptions, um, do they sort of make sense? And then to sort of go from there. Yeah, no, that was great. That was a very thorough rundown of, of some mm -hmm. some good due diligence. And I hope that the folks are taking that away as as a, a checklist on things you should do as you start looking at deals, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that every investor goes a lot that level of detail, but I love hearing that. And, yeah. uh, you know, I liked how you, you start with the market, right? You start with the market, then you get down into the deal. How's it currently performing based on that? What are all the assumptions, right? And I love how you said, like, are they reasonable? Because that mm -hmm. that is the key. Like, are these assumptions reasonable? And how do you know? Mm -hmm. Well, based on, like you said, looking around, what are other rents at, right? Like, right. where is this property in relation to others? Yep. So I think that's great. And then, and then you kind of went into track record, right? Around execution risk. Like, how many times have they done this before? Um, and I actually love that term execution risk. I wrote that down mm -hmm. and because it, it, it is a, a real thing, right? It's just the first time you do something, it's always softer than the second, third, fourth time, right? You get yeah. better as you go. And yeah. so absolutely, I think that that's a great way to approach looking at a deal. So I appreciate you breaking that down for us. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to switch gears a little bit because I think you have a really unique perspective in this, your background as an auditor, your background being inside these funds, right? Mm -hmm. um, what are maybe what are some of the things that that people should look out for? Uh, are there things you learned like from the inside or from your auditing experience that that could be red flags for folks, or, or just things to um, maybe that they need to understand, even that that they might typically not. Yeah, you know, one thing that I would say comes up a lot is that um, understanding, you know, how this deal is going to pay out cash flow. <laughs> um, and even institutional investors get tripped up with this. So like, for instance, you invest in a, a fund that's developing, a development fund, and you don't realize that, wow, this fund is not going to cash, like this investment is not going to cash flow. <laughs> um, and like sort of understanding upfront that the nature of that investment is that it's going to be a longer hole with a pop at the end and that there will be no cash flow during the whole period um, and then sort of knowing okay this is what i signed up for when i decided to invest in this kinds of deal um, i think that's one of the things that um, is out there that people don't always think about like when they when they see these deals, because a lot of those deals have really high returns. Those are the ones that are like 25% and maybe even 3x your money because it's a development project. So there, you know, there's a lot of high potential to provide lots of return. Um, so that's the first thing I would say. Uh, the second thing I would say is, you know, the way in which the waterfall structure is done on a deal. I think for me, I think um, I have maybe because I see a lot of deals, but I do see a lot of deals where like, you know, GP, the split is like, instead of it being 80, 20, 80% to LPs, 20% to GPs, I'll see like an 80% to GPs and 20% to LPs. Um, and people presenting deals to me that are this way. and. It makes me sad because I know that there are going to be investors out there who don't know 
that they could put their money somewhere else where they're getting an 80-20 split <laughs> um, and a better return than what this person is offering them. So that kind of stuff makes me sad when I see that because like, it just makes me sad because I know that it's possible to be able to invest that same 50K, 100K or whatever somewhere else and just get a better return. So <clears throat> getting educated about the returns is like really important. Uh, the other thing that I would, I would say for investors is I think that sometimes people don't do enough research on like maybe the operators themselves, like understanding, you know, who, like how these people communicate. Um, and then you're now already in the deal and you realize, oh, like they don't do quarterly reporting. Um, they don't send out any PLs or anything of that nature. Um, and I think that sometimes like, you know, like knowing that kind of stuff can help you also on the other side of that many times people don't even know that they should be getting that or even how to review that so for instance i was in a deal in 2019 that was in atlanta i purchased in this they purchased it in the summer and that deal was giving out quarterly financials and quarterly updates so i could see in 2020 that that deal the nois were negative so it was no surprise to me that once 2021 came around, they were getting ready to sell, they sold the property. So a couple of things that I learned from that experience is the benefit of one, investing in a really good market. Because even though the asset itself was a class C asset and the combination of not being able to execute on the business plan, which was a lot of renovations was the plan. And then secondly, dealing with a lot of tenants who were unable to pay um, both of those things affected returns and the uh, inability to perform the asset the way they wanted to perform it, to run it. So as a result, um, they saw that the writing was on the wall and sold the asset. So, you know, being working with operators who are aligned with you and who believe in preservation of capital, because some operators would have just kept the asset and tried to turn it around and you know go deeper into the hole but also being investing in a really good market because they were able to sell the asset for 30 percent gain so not only giving investors back their money but also with some gains so it's like things like that that <clears throat> is important for investors to think about when looking at these kinds of deals is like understanding are the operators sort of in line with you and those kind of returns those kind of waterfalls to me illustrates that their incentives are in line with with the investors gotcha yeah i mean those are you're kind of hitting on the just the dynamics of the deal structure right which is critical to understand and and probably something that people may feel you know, may, may feel funny asking about, may feel like they should, they should already know it, right? And, and I think like what we're saying here is make sure you're asking those questions. Like those are not stupid questions. Those are, those are okay. questions that need to be asked. Uh, you need to absolutely understand um, 
the waterfall structure and, yeah. and how cash flow gets paid and when when it gets paid right and and i've never seen a, a deal like that uh 80 split to the sponsors but that just seems kind of uh predatory it seems mm -hmm. like they're just trying they're just hoping somebody doesn't see which side the gp and the lp are on so yeah. i'm glad i haven't seen one of those one more thing i'll also say is um deals where they are relying on a refi in order to make the returns work in my opinion ah. are also red flags because yes. that you can't guarantee in this current economy and the current marketplace you can't guarantee that a year from now the interest rates are still going to be at the levels they are at yeah. so it's possible that they could be higher a year from now when you're ready to refinance yeah, I 100% agree with you. And I see that all the time. And uh, I mean, I saw a deal where they were refining, they had three refis in the, in the whole period underwritten. And that's extreme. But but I agree with you that like, you can't guarantee that you shouldn't base your underwriting that you're going to be able to refi. Yeah. Because uh, like you said, you never know if you can. Great. Right. That should be part of the plan. It shouldn't be the only plan. Right. Correct. If it makes sense based on the market dynamics. Sure. Right. You'd be foolish not to, but it shouldn't be the only plan. And it, and it can't be what you're what you're basing all your returns off of. Right. Correct. Yeah. Now, I think those are awesome things that you brought up. Um, the other thing you mentioned was communication. Right. And just how does communication work? What reports are you going to get? When are you going to get them? I mean, those are critical things to ask because mm -hmm. I mean, those, that's one of the things, and, and this is from my own experience, passively investing as well, right. that really varies from sponsor to sponsor is like, how do they communicate? When do they communicate? And what do they communicate? And, and it just, it's vastly different. So it's really important to ask that. Yeah, very important. And I think that's a way in which sponsors can differentiate themselves is being able to, you know, communicate consistently um, to investors, because then that helps investors to know that that increases your ability to have repeat investors in your deals. Yeah, 100%, 100% agree. So you mentioned that uh, earlier, you were talking about like recession proof, and, and you actually had this term like winterizing your investment. I thought that was yeah. kind of funny. And, uh, you know, so what do you mean? I guess, what, what does that mean? Tell us what that means. Uh, yeah. Is it a style? Is it certain things you're investing in? I mean, how, how are you winterizing your investments? Yeah, you know, um, for a passive investor specifically, when you're thinking about deploying your capital, you know, you might have half a million dollars that you want to deploy. And you might be thinking, how do I, how do I deploy this capital in the way in which it's not going to be affected by recessions when it's deployed? I think a couple things. One, you want to diversify. So that's where you want to get educated about all the different ways, especially if you want to invest it all in real estate, you want to diversify across the different asset classes. Um, and that could mean different asset classes in multifamily itself. So like maybe having a portion of it in like a, a minus deal, a B plus, B, B minus, C, because each of those asset classes are going to have a different return profile because each of them is going to have a different risk. 
see being the most risky, but also the potential for the highest return. Or you could be dealing with a class B asset that has deep value add, which could give you high returns, but because it's a deep value add, it comes with higher risk. So I would say that's one of the, that's one of the ways you can winterize slash recession proof your portfolio is by, um, even if you're investing in real estate is diversifying it across the different, um, asset classes. Um, and then number two is like also looking at different operators, um, also looking at different markets, like not just investing all in the same market will then put you in a position where you then need to build relationships with different operators. Um, so that's where people like myself who decide to take the fund model come in because I'm out there building relationships with different operators that are located in different states and are doing different asset classes. So then investors can then leverage experiences of these individuals to then get access to those kinds of deals without having to then invest 50K in every single deal. So yeah. Gotcha. No, that's great advice, right? Diversify, diversify mm -hmm. in everything. I mean, I think that's uh, that's the best strategy to, uh, to limit your risk, right? Yeah. And, and, to, and to preserve capital. Correct. Um, you know, so I think a lot of good advice there. You know, I'm curious in the fund model, um, you know, you're, you're putting the fund together, you're, you're, you're doing a lot of work, right? As you described, and, and right. you're bringing investors in and then, and then you're working with several sponsors perhaps to, mm -hmm. to invest in, in their deals. But how how is the fund compensated or how are you compensated? Mm -hmm. How How is the structure? Because like, we, there's the deal structure, there's the deal cash flow and and potential returns, right? Uh, from the from the sale. But then how does that flow through to the fund and how is the fund compensated and, and how does it flow through to the investors? Yeah. Great question. So typically by coming to a sponsor with by so when the fund of funds, one of the benefits of the fund of fund structure is you're able to provide one large check to a deal typically. So by being able to provide a large check to the deal, you are able to typically negotiate better terms for that larger check because it takes a lot of stress and pressure off of the person who is acquiring the asset to find all of this capital. If in one sum they're getting a $5 million check, that could be substantially all of their capital or um, a good portion of the capital that they need to raise. Um, in exchange for doing that, they might decide that you could negotiate with them to, you know, get better terms. What that looks like is instead of an eight or 6% preferred return, maybe you're getting a seven or 8% preferred return because you're bringing a larger amount, which as I said before, the benefits of doing that, um, it could be that you negotiate, um, you know, a lower fees. Um, and all of this stuff is not unique to this industry. I mean, like just, you know, real estate syndications. This is also prevalent at the institutional level as well. Um, you will have large companies that will bring in large amounts of investor money into the fund. Um, and in exchange for doing that, they pay less management fees. They um, get 
They pay less in all different types of fees that they could even charge fees. Um, if you're a broker dealer, you could even charge fees for bringing money into a deal. Um, I'm not a broker dealer, so I do not do that. Um, but yeah, like you then can create your fund that then enables you to then get those better terms. By getting those better terms, when that money comes in, that's how the fund manager can then ultimately get compensated because you could still keep an 8% preferred, you could still keep a 6% preferred return. So investors could have the same economics as though they went directly now they're getting exposure to a variety of different asset classes or maybe just two different investments. But at the end of the day, you're able to negotiate better terms so that at the end of the day, you are then able to get compensated for putting that deal together. So that's how it can be done. The other way it can be done is you don't get any um, preferred terms from you know the operator but you decide to do just a 95-5 split at your fund. Um, and that's something that we did uh, on the 2019 fund that I created. Like we didn't, we brought half a million to a deal. We didn't get any better terms, but we did have to decrease the returns for our investors. So instead of getting a 25% IRR, they got a 20% IRR because it was a 95-5 split at our level. So, and they would not have had access to that um, investment otherwise. So by them, because it was a 506B, so by them, you know, by us preventing that deal to them, even though the returns were slightly lower than them going directly with the operator, number one, they couldn't go with the operator. And number two, it still was a better deal than, you know, going somewhere else. So, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, very interesting. I think it's a, it's a great model for folks that want to focus on, on creating investor relationships and, yeah. uh, and, and uh, raising capital, right? Yeah, so definitely. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, Lisa, it's uh, been a pleasure to, to have you on. Before I let you go, though, I want to take you through our keys to success round. There's four questions I want to ask you. The first one is, and this is right up your alley. It's if you were, if, if an investor could only ask a deal sponsor one question, what is that one question that they should ask? <laughs> wow, that one's really hard. <laughs> um, huh, I think, I think the question I think that they should ask is how have you handled a deal that hasn't gone well? Yeah. Yeah, really good. See, you have you have too many questions up there. It just took you a while to, <laughs> to get through the encyclopedia. <laughs> now that that's a great one. I think, yeah, you're hitting on right the track record, their communication, how do they handle pressure? How do they handle when things don't go well? And, mm -hmm. and how honest and upfront are they? Right. Yeah. So you can hit it on a lot of different things. So yeah. I think that's a great one. Uh, what are you most proud of in your career? I would say I'm most proud of the decision to build a business now, um, the courage to take this risk um, and to be willing to deal with whatever happens as a result of this journey. 
That's awesome. Yeah, it's not an easy thing to do, right? It's mm -hmm. a leap of faith. So congratulations yeah. on doing that. Mm -hmm. What is a book that everyone should read? Uh, I would say, I would recommend the 12 week year, the 12 week year. Um, why? Because that book, regardless of what you're doing in your life can help you to achieve so much. Um, there's this saying that says that people underestimate how much they can do in like a year, but like overestimate how much they can do in like six months or a month. Um, and it's so true. Like, and that book helps you to really focus down on the things that are really important in a short period of time and gain a lot of momentum and cover a ton of ground. Awesome. Very powerful. And then lastly, what is your number one key to success? Not giving up. Be flexible on how things manifest, but be clear and focused on the overall vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I asked that question to everybody on the show and, and there's been definitely a common theme of perseverance, never give up. And I think that just, it's critical when you're an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. And when you're, you have your own business, you're going to get knocked down, you got to get back up. And it's all about the, the, you'll have the highest highs and the lowest lows, you know, but it's, uh, but it's exciting. It's exciting along the way, but oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that never give up. That's yeah. right. So true. Awesome. So Lisa, if folks want to learn more about what you're doing, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, totally. The best place to get a hold of me is lisahilton.com. Um, One-stop shop, everything. My podcast is there, blogs there, videos, all anything way to contact me to learn about investing alongside me is there. Um, and I do have a freebie for your show. Um, so that's uh, lisahilton.com forward slash ebook. Um, so quick ebook on you know, real estate syndications and how they work. So, yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Thanks. Well, we'll make sure that's in the show notes so folks can get access to that. Appreciate you offering it. Thank you. Very good. Well, Lisa, have a great rest of the day and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.